Welcome to Three Little Things, a natural health podcast. We've created this space to help you positively navigate the world of holistic and natural well-being, where each week we will explore something new and dive into a diverse range of holistic health topics from all walks of life. As chiropractors, we are equally passionate about helping educate, share and empower you on your well-being journey. Created with you in mind, Three Little Things aims to bring you digestible topics and applicable tools and strategies to help you grow, thrive and live well. So let's dive in. Welcome to episode 10 of the Three Little Things podcast. My name is Sarah and I'm joined by my co-host Lily. And today's episode, episode 10, um, double digits, very exciting, but is also going to round out our first season, I guess. It's going to round out 2021 for us. So we're excited to bring you an episode that's going to be a very chilled out, sit down chat with Lily and I. We're going to talk about a couple of our previous episodes. We're going to chat a little bit about a thing called inflammation and what that means in the body. And we're going to kind of link that back, as I said, to a couple of the things that we've talked about in previous episodes. Um, And then, of course, as always, leave you with three little things to take home and into this next few weeks or this next phase of life, which at the moment is going into Christmas and the new year to help you set yourself up for, yeah, one, an enjoyable time, but two, a nice smooth transition into the new year. So I guess before we start, obviously, we want to bring you back to the concept of why we're doing this podcast. And it's very much to give you guys some resources that you can, you know, learn something, but you can also apply some things and just to give us a foundation to be able to build healthier, happier nervous systems, I guess. Would you say, Lily? Yeah. And um, can I say again, thank you very much to Sarah for being my um, co-host, because I've just learned so much from Sarah. They're only, um, I think... How many years between us, Sarah? 36 years between us in um, age. In fact, I probably graduated as Sarah was born. (laughs) That's slightly embarrassing. Um, But the reason why I'm really happy about doing it this way is because I get to hear all about Sarah's world and what's important in your generation, Sarah. My generation, other things are important. So next year we will cover things regarding uh, women's health, from menage all the way down to menopause. So that's a, a nice long 40 years in someone's life, um, plus other things which we'll come to in a moment. Uh, and recapping regarding our philosophy, you know, so with chiropractic, we really do work in a place in health that is not of urgent medical help. So we're not first responders, clearly. Um, our lane actually is to to stay within wellness. So we want to keep people as well as possible. So if anything at all, it's about prevention from um, being picked up at the bottom of the, of the cliff. So we like to see ourselves as people who can um, keep people safe, good information, solid research, uh, give people agency on looking up things for themselves if they need it, hoping to stay well rather than getting horribly sick. So that's our philosophy. In the past, we've used a lot of different analogies and Sarah and I were discussing this and we really like the sporting analogy, which is we like to help people stay well so that when there's anything urgent happening, they are already as well as they can be. So whatever crisis comes along, it's not going to be such a shock to the system. So it's like training for um, grand final day, you know, you wouldn't, You wouldn't face all your um, different possibilities in a netball game right on Grand Final Day. A really good coach would take you through every dastardly possibility of the most bitchy team you might meet. 
you know, how she might, you know, smack you in the ribs or punch in the jaw. But, you know, you might need to just come across that during training in case it actually happens on grand final day. And the other analogy we like to use sometimes is like if you were sailing from here to Hobart, you know, over, um, you know, Boxing Day, you don't want to be training in your maxi yacht on a very calm, lake-like conditions with um, beautiful soft winds. You want to really push your your craft and see what it can actually do um, on race day. So I guess hopefully by us giving you some information today regarding um, pain and inflammation, it might help you navigate um, what is to come, you know, in the next few months or the party times and help you guys recognize inflammation and maybe how to, to manage it. What do you think, Sarah? Yeah, I totally agree. And just coming back to you know, I guess our philosophy is chiropractors as well. That really is kind of what we do day in and day out. It's, you know, helping people understand that their bodies are capable um, of healing and um, capable of doing um, and, you know, adapting to stress, you know, and by stress, I don't mean just that mental, emotional side of stress, but, you know, also that physical stress, that chemical or biochemical stress as well. Um, And if our bodies can adapt better, like you said, Lily, when we can prepare our bodies to be able to you know, do do the task at hand, like the the analogy of the netball game or the the yacht. When when our bodies are sort of prepared for what's coming, we can adapt better, we can function better, and ultimately we can live better. And yeah, I think that's a really great foundation of what you know we've definitely come into this podcast to create and be able to give people, but also from you know our chiropractic sense as well. And that's why in um, episode one we brought in various words like um the triad of health, which means um the biomechanical part of us the biochemical part of us and the mental emotional part of us. So um, those of you who have been following us through the episodes would know that we've um, approached this on on various levels with um, different guests who we've had on our podcast and you can find them all on Apple or Spotify. But today we will still go on about homeostasis, um, equilibrium. We mentioned things which we wanted to make um, everyday use, say mag- magazine words like um, the cortex, the midbrain, our brainstem, um, innate intelligence of the body, vagal tone, upregulate, modulate, multimodal, sympathetic, parasympathetic, and today we'll actually address pain and inflammation. We also want to bring into um, focus today about our brain and the three main things that you might want to think about regarding keeping our, our amazing organ alive So the three main things might be frequency of firing. That's in summary. Frequency of firing is actually how many times a day we can fire off beautiful neurons um, to have a dialogue with our brain. We also want to have fuel, and fuel is generally speaking um, oxygen and glucose. And affrontation, which is feedback. So we want to have really good feedback from our body. So Generally speaking, if our brains can have those three items happening on a regular basis, it has been shown to uh, diminish all kinds of um, down-the-line chronic brain illnesses. So a simple little story here is regarding um, a part of our brain called the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, which is actually a very important strip of brain tissue that helps us with cognizance or or understanding, and it's actually a very high um, function of our brain. And they've shown that in some um, cases of dementia or other kinds of um, wear and tear in the brain later on in life, those areas that don't light up in that part of the brain can correspond to the same areas in the body which aren't working well. 
So there have been experiments, quite unkind ones really, where they've measured people's range of motion in various joints. And if those joints don't move, certain parts of the nervous system don't fire, those little neurons called joint mechanoreceptors. And guess what? You know, the corresponding part of the brain doesn't light up. So, you know, back to use an old um, saying, some things that we don't use, we certain, we, well, we certainly do lose. So I guess this is why we are doing what we're doing as a job. We want to help humanity um, have a great brain and um, have fun along the way as well. Yeah, and I love that, right? Like it's the neurology behind all of these sorts of things. So, you know, when you use the example of, of dementia or some of these brain um, degenerative diseases, it makes makes total sense because we talked, you know, back in episode one about things like the homunculus, right, and mapping out the brain for areas of the body. So it makes complete sense that there is this dialogue or this communication between areas of our body and areas of our brain and vice versa. Those three things are quite key to maintain a really healthy brain, which ultimately, you know, governs our body. But I guess just quickly, I wanted to cover inflammation as a whole um, and kind of separate the difference between acute and chronic inflammation because I think a lot of what Lily and I will discuss today will kind of fall under that more systemic or that more chronic inflammation that whole body kind of picture Um, and I want to make that difference for you guys of acute versus chronic so most people you know if you say inflammation or in my experience anyway particularly in the sporting environment will think you know a very acutely inflamed joint they may have rolled an ankle Um, sprain the knee you know in a game of sport if we use that analogy that joint will often swell and that's usually people's association with what inflammation is Um, that's a very acute inflammatory process you know you might roll an ankle you might bring some um, what we call edema to the area so that swelling or that fluid in the area you bring things like neutrophils you know the white blood cells um, your macrophages and that sort of stuff to help um, which come to that injured site uh, to help clean up the debris or clean up the damaged tissue to be able to repair it. So those three phases, you know, that inflammation or that swelling where it brings all of that that stuff to the joint or the area to then be able to repair it and then be able to remodel it. And that acute inflammation process should, you know, pretty much be gone within sort of 24 to 72, I sort of like to say 24 to 48 hours. And then, you know, that repair and remodeling phase should start to begin and, and then we heal. That more a chronic picture is a very prolonged, quite a slow inflammatory state that we're living in. Um, and again, we can bring that back to parasympathetic versus um, sympathetic, where we're living very much in that fight and flight all the time. Our cortisol levels are going crazy. And um, we touched on that um, quite thoroughly in our episode with Charity, uh, episode eight. So you can refer back to that one. But all of these processes in the body are very much linked. And we can take that right back to what you were just talking about, Lily, with the neurology and that lose it or use it principle as well. So just a, you know, a brief kind of summary of that acute versus chronic and the difference in those two, um, in those two systems, I guess, or two versions of, of what inflammation is. And with the word inflammation often comes with pain. You know? Yeah. And it's actually not quite well known, but there are actually several kinds of pain. Um, some pains are chronic and some pains are acute. So just broadly speaking, um, we we might use four main types of pain. So the first one that we might refer to is nociceptor pain. And that's most of you will um, feel that when there's that acute damage, as Sarah said. You know, So you roll your ankle, there is um, ligamentous damage. You break a bone, there's some um, periosteal damage. You burn yourself, you know, there's skin damage. So there's all kinds of um, instantly acute damage pain. So that's nociceptive pain. 
And then we have um, an inflammatory kind of pain, you know. So um, as Sarah says, you know, today we'll probably attack more the, the chronic inflammation. Um, so then we'll, we'll come to that later. And then there's neuropathic pain. So that's pain when you actually have a nerve that's not um, functioning very well. And because we're chiropractors and we're body-based people, um, we will see it because an area is actually hypoxic. Um, there are various met metabolites which are toxic to the nerve, and the nerve is causing um, a lot of drama and feeding back to the brain quite noxious information. So that's neuropathic pain. And then functional pain, which is rather vague, but actually very widespread. So these might come under the names of um, fibromyalgia, um, you know, polymyalgia, rheumatica. They have a lot of different names. And even um, irritable bowel syndrome might come under these names. So we're not going to try and step on anyone's toes here. We're just sort of naming four broad categories. Um, other literature might name um, seven categories, but really in the end, that's just um, sort of fine tuning the, the, the four main types. So, you know, if you look into the pain literature, there's a lot of um, dialogue regarding what is pain? Um, how do you reduce it? We are not pharmacists or medical doctors, so we're not going to give you any dialogue at all regarding um, medications or drugs, but I'm sure um, many people would know more about that than, than we than we do. We're going to talk more about um, our approach to, to pain and inflammation. Sarah, do you have any um, comment on that? Um, no, I think, yeah, I think, you know, go for it and talking about, you know, our sort of approach as well. But, um, yeah, I guess definitely looking at the four areas of, or the four types of pain or four, you know, distinct differences in pain. Um, I think that's quite an important difference to make as well. Cause I think ultimately, yeah, people might go inflammation equals pain and that's a very sort of associated um, or people think it's a very associated relationship, I guess, but breaking it down, pain doesn't necessarily mean inflammation and vice versa. Inflammation doesn't necessarily mean pain. And yeah, that's kind of why I wanted to separate the acute and chronic. So um, no, if you would like to share our, our, our sort of approach to that. Well, actually, tell me how you might um, manage acute um, inflammation because I think there's a lot of sort of dialogue out there regarding heat packs, cold packs, you know, um, mm. sprays, whatever. What do you reckon? Yeah, so much, right? There's yeah. plenty of talk around that. Mm. Um, and so, I'm, I, you know, I will talk from, I guess, what the evidence is suggesting and then mm. a little bit about how I interpret that and how I use it in my practice with patients. So um, ultimately the research usually says, you know, ice first, heat later, but ultimately the research says that there's no real difference. You know, they've done studies on people rolling an ankle, tear, you know, doing ligament damage and using heat and others using ice. And there was no real difference or no significant difference in outcomes of injury recovery, outcomes in measurements of pain, like self-measurements of pain and all, you know, all those kind of tests that they do. So technically there's no right or wrong way. Personally, I like to use the info use the ice in the acute in the very acute phase and personally that's just to help rid that inflammation cycle so inflammation has a place and it needs to happen so that we can have that inflammation repair and that remodel phase like i spoke about but it needs to be a limited process so to me i use ice or i recommend ice in the short term to help one it, it can be a pain relief as well very much so two to to definitely help kind of rid that inflammation so that we can get rid of it and and the body can begin its healing process I like to then at that point introduce a more heat-based therapy um, to bring some more blood supply to the area, not necessarily, you know, inflammation um, and edema, so to speak, but some more blood supply for healing purposes, basically, and, and promote that good healing and good nourishment to the area through the blood supply so that we can heal, um, whether that be faster or whether that just be, you know, 
good functional better healing um, but that's sort of my approach and that's what I um, sort of help coach my patients through an understanding of but yeah so RICE basically, basically yeah, yeah, yeah exactly okay. which is you know definitely yeah. what the evidence says but ultimately if you did that in reverse and you you know it's not a muck up to use heat first and isolate or vice versa or use ice for a week or whatever so I don't want people people to hear that and go I stuffed it up you know I stuffed up that ankle injury because you didn't the evidence does say that you know it's neither here nor there but that's where I feel like you do get the best results and makes most sense in my mind yeah and also going back to episode three i feel that we're really into structure and yes. i've just found it anecdotally um if an if a joint or a part of the body is um in its best alignment yes um, it seems to heal uh, much more quickly and has a more desirable effect because after all fibrosis will set in however we look at it you know, this nature's way of healing mm. fibrosis means scar tissue and Gradually over time, as we do know through research, scar tissue can attract um, calcium ions, which eventually become spurs you know, yeah. in various parts of our bodies. I've looked at various patients over 36 years, and I find the ones who heal in the best alignment mm-hmm. yeah, seems to have um, much less fibrosis mm-hmm. and much chance much less chance of forming um, you know, spurs in the long term. So I can't put any research. I just know that anecdotally in my practice, people have much better function after an injury when they're aligned, yeah. would you say? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, they're adjusted. Um, and would you say pain-wise as well? That- totally, yeah. Because yeah. once again, um, if we were to look at chronic pain here just quickly, um, as I just mentioned earlier on about um, joint mechanoreceptors, these are big fat nerves that carry information from the joint to the brain at a rate of 120 meters per second. So it's very fast acting. The brain loves it. It tells the brain where we are in space and what the joint is doing, you know, what sort of, what sort of health is in basically. Now, if those joints, I mean, if those joints don't move very well, what gently takes over um, the function of that area. So I'm simplifying about 400 people's PhDs, by the way. So just saying, this is not exactly what happens, but about what happens. If those joints don't move very well, um, sometimes these little thread-like tiny fibers called C fibers begin to um, operate. And C fibers never shut up. They just keep talking to the brain and going, Oi brain, oi brain, oi brain, you know, we're not good, we're not good, we're not good. So they perseverate, they ruminate, they go around the circle and they are just chronically painful. So as chiros, we just want to get in there, adjust the joint, get these big fat 1A afferent fibers firing. The brain goes, oh, thank God for that. Shut up, C fibers. <laughs> and we're better off. Yeah. So that's just the Cairo approach to chronic pain. You know, um, an exercise physiologist, a um, psychologist, there are all kinds of other non-drug-based approaches mm. to pain. Um, but strangely enough, they're all brain-based. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, and it makes sense, right? Like what do you think governs our whole body? Mm. It's <laughs> right. our nervous system. Yeah. Um, and it comes back to that use it or lose it principle as mm. well, right? Like if we can use our joints, if we can... Um, put load through them and move them in their planes then we're going to be firing off some of those great mechanoreceptors back to the brain that feedback which we've talked about a lot to the brain and then that feed forward back down to the body is going to be a much happier cycle that's right yeah and i mean that's why movement helps you know that's why our exercise physiologist um friends would just go yes you know because they know exercise helps Mm. i guess what i come across a lot in practice is 
the lack of motivation to do stuff. <laughs> yeah, how many times have we heard that there's no time? Yeah, I can't you know, be bothered. Yeah. Oh, I don't like it. Yeah. So if any of you listeners out there have any ideas at all, mm. um, I'd love yeah. to hear that. I was talking to a few patients today actually and it seems to be, well, for them anyway, mm. a very habitual thing. You know, they enjoy exercise and they like movement, whether it be walking or running or Pilates or a gym class or whatever it is or a team sport for them. Um, but and possibly it's to do with the you know current circumstance in changes to sporting activities and changes to gyms and lockdowns and all that kind of stuff, or whether it's just almost being lazy, I guess. But it's that dropping in and out of the habit, the habit of getting up and going and doing some exercise. Once that habit's formed, once they're in that routine, they find it really easy. When that habit is broken and that's a bit disrupted, people or the people that I've been speaking to have found it quite hard to then get back into that habit. So I wonder if it's less of... You know, people know that movement is good and that exercise is good for them for various different reasons. But it's that, you know, we, we tend to be a little bit lazy in some of our bad habits, possibly. I know. I mean, I think the last two years have shown us um, how well fear works. So there's a lot of research in the psychology um, profession regarding uh, motivation, outcome measures, driving factors, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it has been quite established that if you want to get someone to do something, make them shit scared, mm. you know. Um, the fear factor is going to motivate people 10 times more than the love factor. Yeah. So I don't have any answers around any of that. I'm just really thankful for the people who come to see us largely are driven by love for their bodies yeah. and not from the fear of um, disease and death. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I guess we're just fortunate in our profession, Sarah, that we actually uh, work under the bell curve. Ah, do you want to speak to the bell curve? Well, I feel like you gave me a great analogy before about it. So do you want to speak to the bell curve and share Ooh. with our audience what that oh, image of the okay, bell curve? Okay, so, um, okay, statisticians will once again kill me, you know, but um, the bell curve really is a statistical uh, representation of what might be so-called the norm. So if you can imagine a, a curve that goes up, rises to a peak, and then gently goes down the other side, if you drew a line in the midline of it and folded the paper in half, one end should meet the other. So it should be symmetrical on other side of the midline called the mean. Now, the norm means what's called one, well, three set of deviations, would you say, to yeah. either side mean. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is that as Kairos, we like to work under the bell curve. You know, we want to see people who are well. Um, maybe they're not so well when they first come to see us. Um, so they might have some pain, some dysfunction, something metabolic. We don't know what people are coming in with every day, but um, whenever they come in, we try and make sure that they are within our bell curve and they are in our lane. So we have very, very, we have so many tests we do as people who know us um, will attest to that I would assume everybody with a headache who comes to see me has a brain tumor or meningitis unless proven otherwise. So it's not depressing. It's just saying that, hey, this is what happens. And anybody with right shoulder pain um, are always asked about their um, or organs, especially the, um, or depending on which side it is, you know, their gallbladder or their liver. Because embryologically, those nerve endings are laid down in utero and pain refers from organs onto the body's surface. So because I did my master's in pediatrics, you know, one of the most common pain areas that people um, mistake for just abdominal pain is when the appendix is um, inflamed or irritated. 
um, guess what? It doesn't refer to where the appendix is. That's quite late stage. But one of the first signs is pain around the umbilicus because once again, every embryologically, those organs and that surface of the skin shares the same nerve supply. So there's so many um, things that we ask people and examine for just so that we know the people who come to see us are in our lane and under the bell curve. So I guess that makes our job a lot of fun, doesn't it, Sarah? It does. It definitely yeah. does. Yeah. So, Keeps it interesting too, which is good. But I think, you know, when you, when we talk about, you know, embryology and from the very beginning, it makes sense, right? Like our, you know, our, our, all our organs, all our nerves, everything is, is developed, you know, or grows, I guess from that tiny little fetus into, you know, a baby when we're born. Um, so it makes total sense that these areas of the skin, areas of the body, joints, organs, there's a bit of a map, I guess you could call it with this nerve supply and that, you know, pain at one point doesn't necessarily mean the pain is exactly there, but there's different, like definite patterns, I guess. So, and even in the most is. layer populations, then people would know that if you're getting a heart attack, you know, you wouldn't be clutching your heart. You'd, first of all, you'd be having um, left arm pain, left yeah. jaw pain, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I mean, I, I suppose we'll say the obvious in, the, in a funny way, but, you know, you can imagine that every day you're already using neurology to some extent without really knowing it. So it makes our job a lot of fun because when people come to see us, we get to actually point out nerve endings mm. and, and test various muscle groups. And people really appreciate the change in their body's functions when their nerve endings are working um, in a more healthy manner, more yeah. connected. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So um, trivia question. <laughs> um, who knows what the normal or desirable um, pH of your blood is? pH meaning um, the acid concentration. What do you reckon? Well, I, I know the answer, <laughs> obviously, but we can't ask for it. We don't have an That's audience right, right now. Yeah. That pH of the blood, we want it to be between, you know, 7.35, 7.45, so roughly around that that 7.3, yeah, 7.4. But tell us, Lily, a little bit about we're not often or we're not always perfect, are well, we? Well, I guess the reason why we brought this up is because we wanted to just quickly touch on um, the fact that we would like to stay as um, close to that pH level as possible. And one of the one of the reasons why we want people to breathe a certain way, so... Um, when people breathe, people think they actually bring in oxygen. Yes, correct. But the other phase of breathing, which is expiration, is often ignored. So I think, you know, most parents who've had a child with um, an asthma attack would be um, quite fearful and they will con- they can see this child um, hyperventilating. Yeah. And that child is really trying to get um, some air into his or her lungs. But really, an old wise tale is to get this child to blow into a paper bag because that child needs to get rid of carbon dioxide actually yeah so a lot of the techniques that we do in the practice regarding um, relaxing the nervous system getting the body back into bagel tone um, getting it less acidic is to actually help people understand their their breath and breathing out yeah so a lot of our adjustments are actually um rib based you know we often adjust people's um chest um people's ribs to help them have a more um flexible rib cage so they can expand their lungs properly, but they can also deflect their lungs well. So you'll find that most of the people who come to see us um, are given rib adjustments and often we'll do a lot of work around the diaphragm to help them um, breathe more comfortably and we'll often teach them a, um, a breathing exercise. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
is it paradox paradoxal breathing yeah, yeah that's yeah, yeah i'm trying yeah. to word it in my head yeah. um say it to myself in my brain um so you know and babies do it babies yeah. do it yeah, yeah. but um like, you know, I'll see patients on a daily basis who are breathing shallow breaths into their chest, very trap heavy, you know, their shoulders are rising and we're not getting that breath deep into the to the belly, which is not obviously going into the belly, it's going into the lungs, but that really deep, big breath that's allowing, one, all those ribs to function but those lungs to fill. Mm. Um, and if you think of our rib cage, you know, we have our upper and our lower ribs and they mechanically function or move differently to allow that lung expansion, right? So we, we need to be breathing deep into those, the, you know, filling those lungs deep into our belly to, um, you know, even just from a mechanical point of view, allow those ribs to move. And I can link that back to that lose it or use it or lose it principle. Um, we need to allow those, those ribs to expand, those lungs to expand, those ribs to widen. Um, and then, you know, just as importantly for them to come back together to expel that air and that carbon dioxide um, out. So I find, you know, so much of my day sometimes with patients can be teaching them how to breathe. Mm. Um, and it was the same if I look back to my sporting when I was, you know, playing a lot of high-level sport, my coach would, one coach in particular, would always gather us in a circle before the game. We'd have our huddle, but the finish of the huddle was always a breathing exercise and we would have to breathe in for seven, breathe out for 11 and repeat that like two or three times. Um, and from his standpoint, it was a very calming thing, you know, to get rid of the jitters and get rid of the nerve before we stepped onto the court. Um, but it's a, you know, it's the same principle here, you know, getting the oxygen in, but the carbon dioxide out so we can, one, nourish our nervous system and our brain and our body, but two, you know, be able to really, you know, get that breath in properly, get that breath out properly. Mm. And yeah. it gives that very well to um, what you, what we were talking about, Sarah, in episode three, structure and function and how you gave us a really good uh, summary on how to track your own posture because um, with poor posture um, it's actually very difficult to breathe correctly mm. and anecdotally once again the um, older people I see in my practice older being you know my age and beyond the ones who seem to be in incredibly good health are the ones with amazing biomechanics around their their chest their upper body and their necks now the necks are a very important place because as we know our brain stems live um, at the stem of our brain, you know, it's the mm-hmm. base of our brain, a lot of our autonomic nervous system, which is what drives our, our health and well-being, live at around occiput C1 and C2. So I'm really impressed with older people when they can turn their heads from side to side really freely because I think to myself, wow, at least you're nourishing those brain centers, you know, brainstem centers. So, yeah, I, I guess what we do every day is, um, yes, we adjust the spine, but the reason why we do it is very um, neurological and very, very neuroscience-y. Yeah. You know? So we just want to sort of make sure everyone knows we're not just, you know, adjusting your body because, you know, we like the sound that it makes. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> absolutely not. The spine sometimes. Um, and that comes back to, you know, you said before, Lily, we, we want to, you know, we're seeing patients in that bell curve or under that bell curve. So, you know, yes, okay, a patient might come to us in pain or they might come to us with an injury, but so much of what we do is very much preventative care as well is that maintenance or managing a well body once we get them to that state so that they can then, you know, live and have that foundation of good health and live, you know, as best they can. Um, And something like what we're talking about now with the breathing and the cervical, the neck rotation to nourish those areas of occiput C1, C2 and then, you know, the brainstem, um, is very much that preventative and that good nurturing of good health so that we can, you know, what I'm trying to say is someone's not going to come to us and go, um, can you adjust my C1 because I can't breathe properly? Um, but that's what Some I mean. Do. They may, yeah, yeah, as soon as I said that. Mm. Um, 
But that's, I guess, that broader understanding for our audience of what we do as chiropractors is is not just necessarily treating a knee injury or treating, you know, adjusting the spine for pain or, or because we like it, as you said. But there's so many neurological intricacies that we as chiropractors mm. can have an effect um, and help teach people how they also can have an yeah. effect on so their body. So all modulators in the brainstem, I mean, you know yourself anecdotally once again, when you have a really grumpy teenager lie down and have an mm. adjustment, they, they stand up and they go, oh, um, any washing to be done, mum? You know, can I fold the clothes? No, that's going too far. But you know how... Um, <laughs> You know how sort of um you, you can uh, get a, a grumpy a grumpy mesolimbic you know yeah. teenager and they do have an adjustment and they actually come up smiling you know so yeah. I mean there are many neuroscience explanations but we're just telling you an anecdote because um we, we do know it happens it works every well time. even in younger kids too yeah. right like I've got oh, plenty God, of patients yeah. I you know yeah. even today that numerous patients but you know four or five-year-olds having mm. tantrums in the waiting room yeah. come in, have their adjustment, their nervous system just gets a minute to settle. We do, you know, some breathing exercises as well and all of a sudden they're off the table and, yeah, you know, you say it's too far but it's not too far to say that, you know, they are asking mum what can be done or they're using their manners a lot nicer and, you know, they're um, – which, you know, makes a huge difference to the way yeah. we live, yeah. right? It makes me happy too when kids actually ask to be booked in to see their Cairo. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess it all feeds back and quite nicely ties up the triad of health and the inflammatory um, processes within each arm of the triad, you know. So we've just discussed um, structure in a very big way um, in our past episode with Charity King, who was a clinical nutritionist. She discussed um, biochemistry and reducing inflammatory products and how to make best use of cortisol and three amazing biohacks. What we haven't got yet, but we will have next year, is someone who's going to help us, um, you know, with regarding the mind and, um, you know, how to manage inflammation within our thoughts and feelings, I guess. Yeah, so I think it's been quite a useful episode to help Mm. us, um, you know, get to the idea of inflammation and how that makes for ourselves, which is the only control we have, really, our own selves and our own selves, um, if we can be as good as possible within them, yeah. then we might be better people to other people. Mm. So that's what we're trying to establish in our young population anyway, because the old ones, you know, <laughs> they're lost. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, Lily, I'll share a little bit. I want you to talk a, bit, a little bit about brainwaves. Oh, we haven't wow. quite touched on that, but this also, I guess, can come into it. Okay. Well, we're going to um, use the whole brainwaves very brief discussion to set up maybe next year's yes. talk on yeah. sleep. But to be fair, I'm going to make it really, really simple. So um, once again, neuroscientists out there, apologies, don't cringe. We have prefaced it by saying we are a, a magazine approach to, to this. So the four main brainwaves, so let's take, for instance, and we have beta, which is about 25 hertz, 25 um, cycles per second, which is what we are in right now. That's Sarah, you and me talking, yakking, engaged, alert. <clears throat> then we have alpha, which is slower. It's when we're daydreaming, and alpha is around um, 8 to 12 hertz. Theta, which is quite hypnotic, that's about 4 hertz. And then delta, full sleep, which is um, 2 hertz. Now, sleep researchers will say that if you simply get into theta, it is almost like getting into sleep. And theta actually naturally happens in um, at two times of our 24-hour cycle. It's around the time we fall asleep and, again, around the time that we wake up. So theta is a very good place to be. Now, there's a lot of research to show, too, that theta is very hypnotic 
it bypasses the cortex and sits in our deep memory. So well, people who are into hypnotism have used it to um, change behavior or implant messages. Now, just as a little aside, as a general rule, most children between naught and seven are actually largely in theta. So it's quite interesting for most um, small people that we try and give them um, logical um, explanations or try and um, tell them something that re requires a lot more uh, maturity and kids don't get it because they are really quite in that hypnotic, unfiltered state of mind, which also goes to um, the point that whatever we say to them often gets pretty unfiltered and stays in their hippocampus. So things like, oh, you're so clumsy, naughty girl. Oh, that's dirty. You know, so I know being a parent is really hard, but there are certain ways later on in life we can actually use theta to um, reprogram those um, those events. Mm. But anyway, I guess what we will lead into right at the end is the three little things and how we might use theta during breathing. Um, but to maybe wrap up this year, Sarah, we yeah. might preface who we will yeah, be next, next year. year. Yeah. yeah, which is, I mean, one, crazy to think that it's 2022 next year. Yeah. but. Um, exciting to think of what we kind of have lined up and, and what we are kind of thinking of coming into the next season, I guess, of our podcast. So we mentioned a few along the way, but we have a beautiful psychologist who's going to come and join us um, and we're going to pick her brain, as you said, Lily, about that mental emotional side of our, tri of our triad that we described back in episode one. We're also going to have a couple of episodes on sleep. So we're going to have a incredible baby sleep expert come and join us. Um, and we're going to have an episode dedicated to our babies because obviously, as you guys know, Lily and I are both pediatric or we're chiropractors, but both see a lot of pediatric patients. Um, and yes, yeah, sleep is a big one amongst that population. Um, so we're going to have a beautiful, a beautiful person come and speak on pediatric um, sleep um, and their sleep cycles and all that kind of stuff. We're also going to do an episode on sleep, but more generally for adults or for people who aren't babies, basically. So adolescents up into adulthood, because I, I think that's probably quite a, well, it's a very important area to talk about, but one that every second patient comes in, you know, with disrupted sleep or challenges sleeping. So I'm excited for that one as well. We're going to also have our beautiful doula Brooke back, or we're hoping to have Brooke back um, to do a more dedicated episode to labor, uh, the process of labor, what labor is to start with, what labor feels like, but yeah, we're going to have Brooke back for that, which is going to be amazing. We're also going to do a bunch of stuff on hormones as well. So hormonal health, um, like Lily said, you know, from onset of period through, you know, what your cycle is, the different phases of cycle, you know, we might even talk about different ways to exercise and things to eat in those cycles to very much complement what our body is going through hormonally, all the way up to things like menopause um, and how what our, you know, the process our bodies are going through, how we can support that um, and how, yeah, I guess you can support yourself through those processes as well. But also possibly having another exercise physiologist back. We work with a couple who specialise in women's health and we could talk about the role of exercise therapy in and hormonal health and how that joins up. So heaps of possibilities there as well. But I guess the list is endless. So I guess with that beautiful long list of amazing um, practitioners that we're going to have on board, but also between Lily and ourselves, if you have a particular topic that I guess you'd like us to talk about or that you're interested in, um, if we can't quite fit it into the podcast schedule, we will definitely send some information your way 
um, or lead you down a pathway to, to get the correct information or refer you to the practitioner we think might suit you best. Um, so please let us know if you have any particular topics that you want to hear about or want us to talk about. But as we've, we've said, this is episode 10. It's going to be the last one of this season and we will kick back off in the new year. I don't have uh, a date for you or anything yet, but definitely look out for us in the new year because three little things will be back. And um, we also had one more guest that we didn't mention, and that was um, one of our other psychologists who's going to talk about dying. So I know it sounds a bit depressing, but um, guess what? You know, we do die. Mm-hmm. That's what we're all doing. <laughs> but um, really, in the end, it, it will probably be um, very uplifting. So tune in for that one. So I'll throw the little thing, Sarah. Yeah, we're going to um, – so I'll kick us off with – one of them, which is we didn't really touch on too much, but I did refer you back to sort of um, Charity's episode about this. So is the biochemistry side of things. So that is what we put into our bodies, put simply. So you've probably heard the terms before of inflammatory foods and anti-inflammatory foods. So inflammatory foods, think more of, you know, your alcohol, your processed foods, your very sugary foods, you know, I guess your junk foods, um, that sort of that's all very lumped into that. In very high quantities, things like dairy and gluten can also be quite inflammatory, but by no means am I saying get rid of all of that, but just keep in mind that they also can be uh, inflammatory as well. And then you've got your anti-inflammatory group, which is things like your berries, which are also very high in antioxidants, or your nice healthy fats. So your omegas, so things like your salmon and walnuts, other things like almonds, also you know bone broth, what else is anti-inflammatory? Lily, I've gone blank. Well, I just like your little um, little saying here. Yeah, building a, a plate, building a healthy plate. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, we could do a full episode just on that, but that's sort of breaking down portions of, you know, your carbohydrates, your, your proteins and, you know, your healthy fats and the micro and the macronutrients of building a healthy plate. But uh, talking about inflammatory, you know, we really want to be including – more anti-inflammatory, less inflammatory foods into our diet. Yeah, and I guess this is where um, the internet does come in very useful. You know, so, super useful. So we are just throwing out ideas there for you guys to uh, Google um, with some agency, basically. Mm. I guess. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and yeah. you know, that's the thing about building a plate is that mm. you are building your plate. Mm. Um, so definitely, there's some really great diagrams um, where it breaks the plate up into the portions of what it thinks your macronutrients should be um, or what you should go as like a guide and then gives you some great examples of what might be included in, in those categories. Understanding that sort of reducing the, the inflammatory foods and increasing the anti-inflammatory foods, but that everything is great in moderation as well. So not definitely not um, advocating for cutting anything out specifically. So that's one little thing. Mm-hmm. Number two little thing is we discussed breathing, um, albeit quite briefly in the end but once again I would urge you to look up your own way of getting into that beautiful alpha theta breathing Mm. style so alpha is very easy sometimes just by daydreaming you're already in alpha Um, theta requires a little bit more effort um, in terms of knowledge so google Google things like um, yoga nidra you know or theta breathing there's so many ways of getting to that state um, without having to get quasi-religious about it you know so um, that would be a really fun thing to do, the the whole breathing thing. Yeah. Many, and it, yeah. Heaps of apps too. Oh, oh so yeah. many. Mm. And even just, you know, simply lying down, hands on the belly and really getting that breath into the belly instead of into that, you know, um, keeping it short and shallow in the breath, getting that really deep breath into 
the belly. And I find with myself and with patients, as soon as we can program that, everything else sort of starts to filter in. Yeah, we call it alpha breathing, don't we? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a short term. Training. And what's our third thing? Really? Oh, the third thing are, are words. So words can be quite inflammatory. So um, we were having a bit of a laugh about this because sometimes if you say a word to some people, the association immediately is one of fear and panic, you know. So OSCE, um, mm. HSC, mm. exams, um, Christmas, <laughs> mother-in-law. I mean, you know. <laughs> grandmama it can be whatever and it's actually quite nice to observe our own reactions to certain words and and to um pause and to once again breathe and to acknowledge those words or concepts are quite inflammatory and they do make our hearts beat quite fast so that's that whole arousal state so what we're trying to say is that um, just be aware of them. I mean, running away from those words actually drive them out further and deeper and they become more explosive as time goes on. So all we're saying here is um, have a play with certain words that create a certain reaction in your body and and sit with it, you know, look at it, um, play with it maybe eventually laugh at it. So we are not psychologists. We're just saying that certain things trigger different responses in our bodies. It's just nice to actually to be able to um, observe them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this episode was intended to give you a bunch of things to help you go into this, you know, over the new year period nicely, I guess. So, yeah, that's a wrap for season one of the Three Little Things podcast. I want to sort of echo what Lily was saying before and thank you guys for listening um, and for your amazing feedback that you've given us along the way on each episode as well. We have loved putting this podcast together and creating these episodes um, together and we just hope that you guys are finding them as valuable and as worthwhile as we have um, when we've created them. So here's to 2022 and the next season of the Three Little Things podcast. Lovely. Thank you, Sarah, so much. A quick disclaimer, these episodes are not intended to replace help, treatment or advice from your healthcare professionals. The information in today's podcast is purely for educational purposes and is not designed to diagnose or treat any conditions. This is just a friendly reminder that we do not know you or your child or those around you and therefore do not know your specific needs. Please seek guidance from your healthcare professionals surrounding your concerns.